Healthy Hacker, Episode 11. Welcome to The Healthy Hacker, where we talk about programming puzzles, memory fitness diet, and everything else that you, a healthy hacker, find interesting. I'm Chris Hunt, and today we have a voicemail from Ben in New York City. Hey Chris, big fan of the podcast. I'm currently a junior developer with under a year of experience, and often find the sheer amount of technologies I want to learn to be daunting. What are strategies you've employed throughout your career to grow and improve as a programmer? Thanks again, and looking forward to more episodes of Healthy Hacker. Wow, Ben, thanks. That is a really good question. And I think if you had asked me this question in person, I don't know if I would have been able to give you an answer. But haven't been able to think about this for the past couple days, I think I've been able to boil it down to a pretty good list of the strategies that I found myself using the past few years to improve and grow as a programmer. But before we get into that... Let's do the workout of the week. The workout of the week is a section where I like to take a workout that I've done recently or seen or just thought was cool and share it with you. And hopefully sometime this week, you'll get a chance to try it yourself. And I'm going to do it myself as well. So this week is a pretty simple workout. It's difficult, but it's simple. Find a day this week to take 20 minutes to work on doing a handstand. 20 minutes. That's it. Now, if you're a handstand pro and you're like, man, I totally got handstands down, then just try to hold a handstand for 20 minutes. I bet you can't do it. If you're not a handstand pro, if you've never done a handstand before, you've never tried doing a handstand before, then I've got an awesome video in the show notes that I've linked to that shows a progression going from nothing to being able to do a perfect handstand with perfect form and hold it for a really long time. The video itself is about nine minutes long. Like I said, it's a full progression. So it's a little bit on the long side for a video. But if you take the time to watch that video, learn some of the progressions, and then take the next 20 minutes to work at whatever level you can do in that progression, then that's only a half an hour of your day, and you might be able to finish doing a handstand, which is really cool, right? So again, workout of the week, just 20 minutes of handstand work. If you've already got handstands down, spend 20 minutes doing that. If you've never tried a handstand or you're not fully there yet, I've got a video that has a nice progression that gets you from nothing to amazing, and it's 10 minutes long. So give that a shot. If you're able to do a handstand, you've never done one before, leave a comment in the show notes because that'd be really cool to see. And I'm excited to work on my handstand too because it's pretty bad right now. And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's finally time to get to your question, Ben. And we are going to talk about what strategies have I used to grow as a programmer. So first off, Ben, again, thank you very much for the voicemail. Really happy you did that. Everybody, please go send me a voicemail right now. I love voicemails. Healthyhacker.com slash voicemail. Second off, Ben, thank you for assuming that I have in some way grown as a programmer. That's a crazy assumption, but I'm glad you made it. It's a huge compliment. So I would say that I still have a ton of growing left to do. I w- I'm kind of a, a sprout, if you will. I have a few leaves, but I am in no way a programming tree. Lots of growing left to do. But looking back at myself you know, 20 years ago, I am definitely much better at programming today. I have a better idea of how to work with programs, how to work with other people, And so I'll talk about the strategies that I've used, that I think I've used, to go from zero years of experience, never programmed before, to now working at one of the most cool companies ever, github.com, and the things I've done to get there. So rewind 20 years ago, this is Chris in elementary school perhaps, I'm sitting on the carpet in my house in the living room, and I have a controller in my hand For the original Sega Genesis. It's that black console made by Sega. Takes cartridges. It's uh, 16-bit. I'm playing Mortal Kombat. And if any of you are video game fans, you will know the game Mortal Kombat. Because it was kind of a big deal back in the day, right? The way this game works is you have a couple rounds. It's a fighting game. And you fight the same player. And whoever wins two rounds out of three is the winner. 
And the thing that this game introduced that was different than any other fighting game in the past is when you finally defeat your opponent after two rounds, you hear this big, deep voice that says, Finish him! Finish him! Sub-Zero wins. And then you have to press this crazy combination of buttons on the controller, and you get to do what's called a fatality, where you take your opponent and just rip them into some bloody mess, and it's totally disgusting, and I'm, like, embarrassed to even talk about it right now. But the point is, is this game had, like, 20 different characters, and each of those characters had a different button sequence that you had to press to do this finishing move. And, I mean, let's be honest. If you can't do the finishing move, you might as well not even play the game, right? Because when you finish those two rounds, if you mess up the button sequence and you don't actually finish your opponent, it's pretty lame. So you kind of have to know all these sets of fatality moves so that you can play the game and actually have fun playing the game. So I explained this problem, this dilemma, to my dad about having to memorize all of these fatalities. And he looked at me and he said, let's just write a program. Now at the time... I did not know, even know what a program was. We had a computer, but it was, you know, it was the, the home computer. I did not have my own computer. I had never written anything for it. The internet did not exist. I could not search for things. All we had was the library to search for things. But my dad at work had used this language called QBasic, which is a programming language for Windows. So we sat down in an afternoon and we made this program where if you type in the name of the character that you're playing in Mortal Kombat, it spits out the move sequence you need to do to finish your opponent at the end of the game. And this was so cool. This made the game so much more fun because I did not need to memorize anything. This was my first programming experience. Now, a lot of people you talk to today, especially people who have been programming a while, are going to have a similar story. And they're going to be like, oh, back in the day, I started programming on the Commodore 64 or the Atari 2600 or, and I wrote, you know, assembly and, you know, that's cool. Those stories are really fun to tell. And I got to be honest, I really like telling that story just now, but writing that Mortal Kombat fatality indexer thingamajigger has not helped me become a better programmer. It's not made me a more you know, senior engineer. It's done nothing. It's a story. It's something I did in the past. So if you're just starting today, right now is your first day programming, or two months ago is your first day programming, and you don't have this story that you can tell about starting 20 years ago with Assembly or QBasic on Windows, that's totally cool because that has nothing to do with becoming a good programmer. Nothing. So the next time you're at a conference or hanging out with some programming buddies and they're all, you know, going around in a circle talking about how they started programming X, Y, Z number of years ago and all the cool stuff they built. Those are great stories, but don't think that that makes you any less of a programmer because I found that doesn't matter at all. So going forward now, a couple more years, I've got this amazing QBasic program under my belt, right? I'm now in high school and in high school, I'm not doing any programming. I'm into sports doing like, you know, soccer, football. This is when I get into weightlifting and just like fitness in general. I continue to be obsessed with video games and all my free time goes to playing video games. And then I also start, get, you know, I get my first job in, in high school where I'm tutoring algebra because algebra is just a topic that I really enjoyed in high school and I had opportunity to make money teaching it to people. So I started doing that. Whenever somebody asked me in high school, hey, what are you going to do when you get out of high school? You know, what's, uh, what are you going to do when you grow up? I would always say, oh, you know, something with computers. But I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew that, you know, computers are interesting. I think there's a lot to do there. I just want to do something with computers. But in high school, I'm not really doing any kind of programming, no classes, no nothing. I'm not even doing anything in my free time. So now, four years later, High school is finishing up, and now it's time to make that decision, like, what am I going to do? Well, my parents have always told me I need to go to college, so I actually didn't think that much about it. I thought, okay, high school is done. Now it's time to go to college. What am I going to major in in college? And when I went to go talk to the advisors, and I told them the same story I told everybody else, which is, oh, I want to do something with computers. I was told that the major I probably wanted to do is going to be computer science, and that's going to be programming writing software to make computers do cool stuff, which sounded good to me, so I enrolled in the computer science program. Now, nowadays, if somebody was graduating from high school right now, today, 
they have this interesting choice where they could decide to go to college like I did and get a computer science degree, or we now have other options, these coding boot camps that you might have heard of, things like the Turing School in Denver, like, uh, what's another one, Dev Boot Camp, which is in New York, Chicago, San Francisco. There's a few others like Code Union, Hack Reactor, which is another one in San Francisco. I think Code Union is actually online, so you don't actually need to go anywhere for that. But these schools are different than like a traditional college in that they focus only on teaching you the concepts that you need to be successful as a professional developer. And in my opinion, are much better than the education I got at a traditional college in a computer science program. So my university had a four-year program, four years. And the last year was what's called the capstone, where you work on some big project and then you present it at the end of the year. And it's supposed to simulate the design, the review, the iterating on your idea a little bit, and then finally presenting it to other people and actually shipping a product. Well, it took me five years to graduate this program instead of four. And the reason for that is college for me was about so many other things besides going to class and besides learning computer science. The nice thing about these four-year universities is you have this crazy diverse education that you're forced to have, and there's tons of classes and other topics that you can take. So you're not focusing just on computers. I focus mostly while I was in college on photography. I became the photo editor of our newspaper there. This is when I started picking up photo jobs as well for weddings and journalism. I started shooting professional sports. I also got involved in music program, doing choir. I used to lead the worship services at the college. And this is also the first year that I became addicted to the Rubik's Cube and other puzzles. So all those things that aren't computer-related sucked up my time and made it so that I needed now five years to graduate college because I wasn't spending enough time actually programming. So what did I learn in the computer science program that has helped me today as, as a professional developer? I, I think what I learned was nothing. I can't think of a single class that I've taken that helps me today with the software I'm writing today. Nothing. I'm really glad I did it for the other diverse things that I was able to do and the people I was able to meet. And I don't know, it's like it's like this weird thing that you look back on and you're super happy you did it, but did it actually help me today become a better programmer? No. All the classes I took in college used Java as the programming language, which I've never touched as a professional developer. Most of the classes were theory-based, talking about building algorithms, search algorithms, sorting algorithms, explaining how databases worked, and explaining how computer hardware understood the programming languages that you were telling them to do. But what the university didn't teach me to do was actually write a piece of software and ship it. All the science behind computer science is definitely interesting to talk about but it's not actually necessary to be a programmer today. But it wasn't a complete waste of time. Now, those five years, again, like I said, I got really into photography. I learned so much about photography and about the business side of photography. I learned so much about music and performance and composition. I learned so much about the Rubik's Cube and puzzles, how to solve the Rubik's Cube quickly, how to solve the Rubik's Cube blindfolded, and all that stuff sounds ridiculous, but it has helped me become a better programmer, and I'm going to explain why. That last year of college, remember, I need to do a capstone project. I need to pick a project about something, and I need to build it, and then I need to present it. So what do I do? I think about this other stuff I'm working on, this photography, this music, this Ruby's Cube, and I think, well, how can I mix in one of these things that are interesting to me and write a program and make that my capstone. So I decided for my capstone project, I was gonna make a robot that solves the Rubik's Cube. Pretty amazing. So for this, I had to learn Java. I had to learn Swing, which is a GUI system in Java, a little windowing system lets you make really ugly interfaces for your program. I had to learn a little bit of assembly that helped me talk to a piece of hardware, which was composed of six stepper motors all wired together that went into my serial port on my super ghetto PC. And I had to learn how to tell Java to tell assembly to send zeros and ones out my serial port to rotate these stepper motors in this plexiglass cube 
to turn the sides of a Rubik's Cube. And when that was done, I then had to write in Java some kind of algorithm that solves the Rubik's Cube. So if I hadn't been interested in these other things, I would have not been nearly as motivated to learn how to write this program, to learn how to turn these stepper motors, to buy glue, to glue together some plexiglass cube and take apart a Rubik's Cube and then reassemble it inside the cube. Like This is stuff that just, it, it's so much work, but because I'm so obsessed with the Rubik's Cube and wanting to solve it with this robot, I was able to learn all these things to make that possible. And when I finally finished that capstone project, I spent the next summer working on another Rubik's Cube related project called JNetCube. And this was my very first open source piece of software. I was on a mailing list, a Yahoo mailing list, talking to other Rubik's Cubers. We were talking about the solutions we use and how we solve the cube and how we can get a little bit faster. And it came up often that we wanted to race each other, right? So we would email each other a scramble algorithm. We'd all do the same algorithm. We'd time ourselves and then we'd reply to the email with our times. And while that worked, it was kind of dumb. So this JNetCube piece of software which was written in Java and Swing, these things that I had to learn to do my capstone project. I uploaded it to SourceForge. Everybody downloaded it, compiled it on their machines, loaded it up, and what it did is it connected us. So if I was in Seattle and I was racing someone in the Netherlands or I was racing somebody in California, we would all see each other pop up in JNetCube. We'd all get to see the same scramble. And then when we started the timer, all of our timers would start at the same time. And we'd solve the cube as fast as we can and then boop, stop the timer, and you'd be able to see who won the race. So it saved us a ton of time. We didn't have to email scrambles and times anymore. We can just open up JNetCube and there's a little chat built in. We can talk about, oh man, that solve was so good. Oh, that scramble sucked, whatever. And I was able to work on that thing for a couple more years after that because we kept using it over and over and over again. So now college is done. And now it's time to get a job, right? This is my first programming job I'm looking for, and I have zero years programming experience. Now, I think the situation has changed a little bit more today. There seems to be, like, tons of demand for programmers. And it was might have been the same back when I was looking for my first job. But the thing I remember the most is almost every job listing I can find asked for five years experience. Nobody wanted zero years experience. Nobody said, oh, please, zero years experience. Totally fine. Come join our company. No, everybody wanted at least five years experience, and I had zero years experience. So instead of actually getting a job as a programmer, I got a job fixing computers. I went to Apple Retail, and I got a job as an Apple genius. Now, while this job is terrible, and I don't recommend anybody ever do it, I will say that the nice thing about being an Apple genius is once you leave work, once you leave the Apple store at the end of the day, you literally do not need to think about work at all. There's nothing you need to do. All you need to do is go home, eat dinner, do whatever you want, wake up, and then come in the next day. You have an amazing amount of free time. If you're unfamiliar with an Apple genius and what they do, let me explain it for you real quick. If you were to walk down to any Apple store right now and you look kind of in the back of the store, you'll probably see a really shiny, glossy desk with six or seven people standing perfectly straight with a blue shirt on just standing there with a big line of people in front of them all looking very angry and holding a laptop or an iPhone or an iPod. And what the Apple geniuses do is they take somebody off of that queue of angry people and they spend the next 15 minutes trying to figure out why they're angry, why their device or machine is broken or software or why their calendars don't sync or why their phone doesn't work or why their battery doesn't charge. And they try to solve that problem in that 15-minute period. If it can't be solved in 15 minutes, if they're unable to diagnose the problem or they're unable to repair or make the customer happy, then what often happens is that broken device or that broken piece of software gets taken away from the customer and gets taken into a back room where you do a real repair. And this repair can take a couple days. It can take three days, five days. It could be just a quick one-hour repair. It depends on what it is. But a lot of times, at the end of a Genius Bar appointment, you're going to be taking the product that the customer has walked in with, and you're going to be taking it from them and repairing it and then giving it back to them so that they are happy. So if you've ever had a broken iBook 
or a broken MacBook or a broken iPhone and you take it into the Apple store and somebody talks with you and replaces it or fixes it or something like that, that is a Genius Bar appointment. So at the store I was working at, we had so many people coming in, so many repairs to do, and so many people working in the back room to do those repairs, like me, that we found it really hard to keep track of that stuff. And each repair had a different difficulty setting. If somebody had a keyboard that was kind of messed up, you can swap out their keyboard and that was really fast. But if somebody poured coffee all over their laptop and they just totally fried it, you had to disassemble the whole thing, replace all these pieces, and then put it back together again. It's a much more difficult repair. And so along that spectrum, there's all these repairs that are all various different difficulty settings, and all the geniuses working in the back room had different skill sets. Some have only been working for maybe a couple months, and they can only do the keyboard repairs, while other geniuses have been at the store for years, and they can do any repair, and they can do it quickly. So seeing this was a problem, you know, we have all these repairs, we don't know which ones to do first, we don't know who can actually do them. I asked my manager, I said, hey, you know, I, I kind of know how to program a little bit. I, I think I could write a piece of software that's going to make this a lot easier for us, a lot easier for us to keep track of these repairs and prioritize them. And my manager was like, dude, totally do it. So he gave me once a week, every Friday, this block of time, I don't remember exactly how long it was, I think it was about four hours, but I had about four hours every week on Friday to step away from this genius bar, to step away from doing repairs, talking to the customers, and just working on this app that we were going to use to manage all the repairs that were coming in. Now, this is pretty dang exciting, right? I'm, at this point, basically a software engineer getting paid really crappy money, but I was still excited about it. And I decided that I was going to learn Rails for this project. And the reason I even knew Rails existed is because I started watching screencasts and listening to podcasts, things like the Railscast, which doesn't really exist anymore. I listened to Ruby News podcasts. I read the Ruby Pickaxe book, which is a really popular book for learning about all these magical things, Ruby. And I spent the next few months writing the software where you can type in a repair, give it a difficulty setting, and then it will assign it to an, a genius and do like this little mentoring program so that repairs got done a lot quicker and people leveled up quicker in the back room. And this Rails app, to this day, is still on my resume as Rails application for Apple. Because that looks awesome, right? And it's not a lie. No, I did not work in Cupertino, but I did learn Rails on my own and built this app that we're using in an Apple retail store. And the only way that was possible is because I just walked up to the manager and asked if I can do it. After this project got done, I started working on more Rails apps in my free time because I had so much fun building that one. So I took another hobby of mine, photography, and I used that as inspiration for my next project. Remember I said at Apple, I had an insane amount of free time. I would leave the office and have nothing to do. You know, I don't even need to think about work. It's a very easy job. And then I'd come back in the morning and work again. So in the evenings and on the weekends, I continued to do photography. And one of the most fun types of photography to do, in my opinion, is sports photography. So in Seattle, which is where I lived at the time, I worked for a couple different wire services and I shot all the pro sports that we had. I shot MLB, NFL, and MLS. And one of the most annoying parts of this job was at every game at halftime, which is usually only about 15 minutes of free time you have at halftime, you need to submit five to 10 pictures to these wire services with extremely detailed captions. So the first half of the game, I may shoot something like 2,000 photos. You know, I'm using a burst of 10 frames per second. I've got this giant lens on and I'm trying to get all the action. So I'm just like blowing up with frames. So I have 2,000 pictures we come in at halftime, and now I need to prune those 2,000 pictures down to five selects. I need to edit them, and then I need to write these cut lines, which turn out to be the most difficult part. I have to say the player that's in the photo. If there's more than one player, I need to say all the players that are in the photo. I need to spell their first and last name correctly. I need to include their jersey number. I need to say the position that they play, potentially how long they've been on the team, and any interesting information about them. And all the wire services expect this information to be in the metadata for the photos. Well, all the other photographers in the room, all these people shooting for different wire services or different newspapers, have the same requirements. 
And at the beginning of every game, we'd all walk into the press room, we'd stand in this big long line, and we'd all get a printout of today's roster that shows who plays on what team, what number they are, what position they are, and then everybody would set that sheet down next to their laptop, and when they came in at halftime, they would just start copying things off that sheet as fast as they can for those cut lines. Well, that is way too stressful for me. So what I did is I made an app called Roster Runner. And it doesn't even exist anymore, but the source is still on GitHub. It was at rosterrunner.com. And all this app does, it's a Rails app. It scrapes all the rosters off ESPN, MLS, NFL, MLB, the NBA website. Those rosters are kept up to date, so you don't even need the paper copy. It just scrapes those down. They don't have APIs. It sticks them in a database. And it lets you download these rosters as text expansions. So how this works is say I'm editing a photo and I see the Seattle Seahawks player number three. Okay. And this is a great photo. So this is the quarterback and he's throwing it to some receiver and I can see the receiver at the edge of the frame. Right. So for this caption, I'm going to want to include the quarterback and the wide receiver and then give a little explanation of what's happening in the photo. So I have these text expansions now that were automatically generated that I've loaded into a program like Text Expander or something like that. And when I'm typing my cut line, all I need to do is type the jersey number of the player and it'll expand out to something like Seattle Seahawks starting quarterback Russell Wilson. And then I can type the rest of the caption, and then I type the number of the next player that I see in the photo, and that'll expand out to something like wide receiver Doug Baldwin. So I'm writing my cut line. I don't even need to look at the roster. All I need to do is type the jersey number of each of the people I see in the photo, and it automatically expands to their team, their position, and their name. And it's spelt correctly, and I don't need to worry about it. And everybody else in the room started using Roster Runner once I shipped that thing. And man, I wish I would have charged. So just like the Apple Rails app, the only reason that thing got built is because I wanted to build it, not because I was asked to build it. So now I'm still at Apple. I'm still an Apple genius. It's been about one year, but I've now built two Rails apps that are being used by people. I've got the repair managing Rails app that I've built, and I've got this rosterrunner.com that a bunch of photographers are using to write captions for their photos. So taking those two projects that I have now, I decided I no longer have zero years of programming experience. I've written two Rails apps and people are using them, right? So now jobs are looking a little bit better. I start throwing my resume out to several different companies and at the very top is Rails app for Apple Inc. Roster runner used by professional photographers. So now I land my first real programming job and it's at a company called Progeny Systems and they're a Department of Defense contractor. I was so excited for this job, not only because I'm now actually a professional programmer, but because I get to get top secret clearance to work on all this amazing, cool government stuff, right? I'm basically like a secret agent. Turns out that wasn't exactly the case. I did need top secret clearance, but it was not as amazing, flashy as I had hoped it would be. But I did learn a few more things at this job. Number one, I was able to help open a new office in Gig Harbor, Washington, which is about a 90-minute commute from where I was living in Seattle. So the commute was horrible, but I got to help build an office, set up my workspace, order chairs and tables, help hire people to work with, and most importantly, help pitch ideas to the government for contracts. How a lot of government contracts work and how a lot of government contractors like Lockheed Martin or Progeny Systems, the company I work for, the way that they get work is the government says, we need a thing that does this. You know, they send it out on the wire. And then all the contractors write up a big design document that describes how they're going to solve that problem, the technologies they're going to use, how they're going to make it work, and why their solution is the best. So the very first project I got to see come in while I was at Progeny, this is from the Navy, the Department of Defense, this may or may not have been top secret while I was there. So if there's never another episode of Healthy Hacker, it's because I'm in jail. But what this contract said is this. Here's the deal. We've got tons of submarines, and they're all specialized in some way for some specific tasks. They all have different weaponry on them. They all have different equipment, different servers, different software. And all that stuff is just doing its own thing. Like we have no idea what's happening over here on this submarine, we have no idea what's happening on this other submarine over here. 
even when we're on the same ship, we don't know what's going on with this piece of software or this piece of software or this piece of software, all made by different private companies, contracting companies. They don't talk to each other. They all have different interfaces. They're all written in different languages. We have no idea what's going on. We've got all this stuff that just kind of patched together that works. What we need is some console that we can put in the command center, in the operations room, on the deck of the ship. Some console that tells us the status and the health of all these weapons around us and all the pieces of software that we depend on as a unit. We need some little pretty interface that we can run anywhere on our ship that shows us the status of these things and allows us to restart them when they die, allows us to be alerted when there's a problem. And, you know, we'd also like to allow these consoles to talk to each other, to have a chat so if I have one operations engineer on the top level of the submarine and another one at the bottom level of the submarine, they can have a little text chat back and forth. And so we need kind of this chat client that's built in as well. So, you know, we need to be able to tell status, restart stuff, and talk to each other. And we need it to be able to run on a bunch of different operating systems all over the ship. So my first thought as somebody who only knows Rails was, hey, let's make this a Rails app. It seems like it could work well as a Rails app, right? We need to run it on Windows. We need to run it on Linux. We need it to run all over the ship. We want all the consoles to look the same. We want people to be able to chat. This sounds like a perfect application for a web app and I know Rails. So the other people in my office were like, sure, I've never used Rails, but that sounds good. We wrote a design document. We submitted the design document and boom, we got the contract. So now we've got this super sweet top secret contract that we get to build stuff with Ruby on Rails. So we have to have this lab built that literally takes 20 minutes to get into. It has three different locks on it, a spinning dial combo lock, a button you have to press, and then it has a timer. And every time you walk in and walk out, you have to put your name in a logbook. And inside this room is an exact replica of the servers that we're gonna need to run our software on, on these ships. And they're like $20 million. So this is my first job ever. The other three people I'm working with have no experience in Rails, but I get to spend the next two years at this company before I leave teaching these three other people how to use Rails and pairing with them building this application so we can wheel it out onto some submarine and plug it in and watch it go. So during this time, having nobody there to really mentor me or help me get better at Ruby or get better at Rails, I started listening to a lot of podcasts and reading a lot of email newsletters. So I listened to things like the Ruby 5 podcast, the Ruby Rogues podcast, JavaScript Jabber, Giant Robots Crashing into Other Giant Robots, The Change Log, a couple other news podcasts that don't exist anymore, The Ruby Show, The JavaScript Show. And like I said, I read some newsletters, the Ruby Weekly Newsletter, the JavaScript Weekly Newsletter. I'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes. But after two years and this project is over finishing up, I felt like I didn't really learn anything. You know, I've randomly picked Rails because it was just the language I knew. Everybody around me was learning from me. I was not getting any kind of mentorship or inspiration. I felt like I had stopped growing. So I left Progeny and went to the amazing San Francisco, the holy mecca of web programming. And here is where my education really blew up. My first job in San Francisco, which I leveraged all my previous experience. I'm like, oh, I work for the Department of Defense. I built this amazing Rails app. I built this thing for Apple to manage repairs. Oh, I built this other app that photographers still use today. You know, I sounded pretty, you know, experienced, I guess, even though I wasn't. I got this job at the Climate Corporation, who was working with Pivotal Labs at the time. You've probably heard of Pivotal Labs, but if you haven't, they're like the manifestation of agile programming. If you were to take like agile and extreme programming and make a thing out of it, that would be Pivotal Labs. While working at Climate Corporation, I learned about pairing. I learned Vim because the person I paired with used Vim. I learned how to test. I had never done testing before working out of the Pivotal Labs office. Now everything I'm writing, I have to test first. I learned so much from testing. And I learned the whole agile workflow, daily stand-up, having a backlog for my work, at the end of every week doing a reflection, talking about the things that worked, the things that didn't work. I would say the things I learned the most from working at Climate Corporation slash Pivotal Labs would be working with other people, teams, pairing. There's a QA team, learned about acceptance, testing, release schedules, all this stuff. Like throwing myself into a new company in a new city, I learned 
all these things within the first six months of joining the company. And that's why after six months, I left the company because I stopped learning. But in that first six months, it was like my mind was blown. I learned something new every single day. It was so refreshing and new. After six months, there wasn't much new to learn anymore. It was very much the same work every day and my learning had stopped. So I started going to more meetups in San Francisco because they're very, very popular. I went to a JRuby meetup and JRuby is a Ruby that runs on the JVM. And there was a guy there from Square. His name's Xavier Shea. And he's talking about, here's how Square uses JRuby and why JRuby is awesome. And I watched the talk and I was really excited, not about JRuby, but about Xavier. He seemed like such a smart dude. And I wanted to learn from him. So I applied at Square, which is a payments company in San Francisco. And on my resume were those three Rails apps I built. And now my new pairing experience that I had at Pivotal Labs, my testing experience where I talked about RSpec and test unit and how I used those things, my experience with acceptance testing, with Selenium and release cycles. And I talked about all the podcasts I listened to and how I met Xavier at a JRuby meetup. And I got an interview. And the way that interviews work at Square is they're pairing interviews. So what do you know? I showed up and the person I got to pair with was Xavier because I mentioned him in the application. So we spent the next hour working together, pairing on a couple different problems. And because I had experience with testing, I was able to test drive everything. And because I had experience making some gems at Climate Corporation, I was able to take the stuff we built and make it into a gem. And because I had experience pairing at the previous company, I was able to be really comfortable pairing with Xavier. And I got the job. And my next year at Square, I continued to improve as a programmer because of the unique things that Square gave me that no other place I've ever worked has provided. So for one, Square is the first place I've ever worked that's had a gigantic monolithic Rails app. Now, if you're a programmer and you've been around a while, you know that almost every single company has this, right? We all started using Rails two, three years ago, and we've got that same app running in production today, and it's so big. The popular thing now is to break that up into smaller services, and you know I don't think anyone's really done that too successfully yet, but this was my first experience with this gigantic app with tons of teams working on the same app at the same time. We had all this automatic testing going on. We had all these dashboards everywhere that showed all the branches and their build status. We had to coordinate things, release them together. It was pretty cool. So this was my first exposure to a project of this size. Something I learned that will stick with me even today from working at Square and working on this big project was learning how to ask questions and learning to always ask questions because nobody that I worked with really understood the entire app. Everybody understood little pieces. And whenever I needed to work on something, I would always need to figure out, well, is this the right way to do it here? Or should I do it a different way? But every single time I worked on something or was told to work on something or I wanted to fix a bug or add a new feature, I always had to, out of necessity, ask somebody how to start that process because it was such a large application. And that's something I had never had to do before. I've always been able to Google things. But you can't Google stuff about an internal app. The only people that know the answers to your question are standing in the room. So this was a big experience for me, learning how to walk up to random people, ask them questions, and really figure out what it is I need to know to continue working on things. Something else that Squared taught me is how to speak at a conference. Xavier Shea was basically my mentor while I worked there. He was my manager. He interviewed me. He was my inspiration for going to the company in the first place. He also taught me how to write a good talk abstract, and he motivated me to get out there and do some talks. I did a talk on service-oriented architecture at Square. That was at RubyConf in 2012. That's my first talk ever. And then I did a couple other talks, Ruby Productivity with Vim and Tmux. I did that two times. And those talks were amazing, not only because I had to really think about the things I was talking about so that I can teach them to other people, but I also learned why conferences are so valuable. A lot of people go to conferences and they, you know, go to each talk, they bring their laptop, you know, maybe they're taking notes, maybe they're reading Twitter the whole time. I don't know, there's a ton of people on their laptops. Then the breaks come up and they go use the restroom, maybe step outside for some fresh air, then come back in and listen to the next talk and then come out and eat lunch. And they continue to do this all day. 
for two or three days till the conference is over. And then they go home and they think about all the things they learned. But what I learned by giving a talk at a conference is that conferences are not about the talks. Conferences are about meeting people. Conferences are about pairing with random strangers and working on fun projects that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And I would not have realized this if I had not given a talk. My very first talk that I gave, when I walked off that stage and I'm like shaking out of how nervous I was and and how happy I am that it's done, I had so many people come up to me and talk to me about their problems, the things they're working on. They're like, hey, that was a great talk. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And I spent the whole rest of the conference not even going to talks just meeting people and talking to them and getting great feedback on my talk, talking to them about what they're doing at their company, pairing with people on open source projects out in the lobby. Conferences are about meeting people and working on random stuff. And the easiest way to meet people at a conference is to speak because people think that you are special if you're giving a talk. You're not special, but people think you are. And they swarm you like crazy and it takes all the work out of meeting people and making new connections. If you really want to watch the talks at a conference, you can always do that with video. Go home, watch them on YouTube, whatever, take good notes, be nice and focused. But take advantage of those connections, those real-life connections you can make at a conference because those connections are what help you become well-known as a developer and they help you advance in your career even more than the stuff that you've learned. So now I've been at Square for a year, and again, it's starting to slow down a little bit. I'm getting really familiar with with how Square works and the projects that we have. So inside, I'm getting this itch. I'm like, you know, it's time. I feel like I'm not leveling up as quickly as I was in the beginning. That usually happens for me around a year. I don't know why, but I started looking for another job. And now I feel like I'm really ready to change gears a little bit. I'm ready to get out of San Francisco and just kind of focus on my other hobbies a little bit more. You know, I still want to program, but I don't want to be like so absorbed in it. I don't want to be just in San Francisco surrounded by it all the time. So I decided I want to move to Portland, Oregon and think about maybe doing some remote work. So I joined a really small company called CameraBits and they build a piece of software on the desktop that I use to edit my photos. So I've been familiar with this company since college. The piece of software is called Photo Mechanic, and it runs on Windows, it runs on Mac OS. And the interesting thing about this piece of software, even though it's a desktop application, it's all Ruby on the inside. It's like their own artisanal C wrapper that runs around Ruby. It's really interesting. Well, I didn't stay at this company very long. Unfortunately, it was just a little bit too remote for me. I didn't work with anybody. I was all by myself, zero coworkers. I was at home talking to nobody for months at a time and I was just getting cabin fever. So I decided, you know, I like the, I still like the idea of remote. I still want to stay in Portland, but man, I need interaction with people. I need some inspiration. I need to work with people that are smarter than me. I don't feel like I'm getting any better. So six months later after camera bits, I started thinking about what's the best possible remote company that I can work for. And I had a lot of ideas came to mind, but the first thing I thought of was GitHub. They're like the ultimate remote team. I feel like I hear about this everywhere. You know, GitHub is big. 70% of the company works from home. They get to work on whatever they want. It's so amazing. It's like heaven. But man, I am like, I've got no, there's no way I can work at GitHub. I mean, it's like all rock stars at GitHub. Super amazing programmers. I would be literally the dumbest person in the company. But I applied anyway. And the reason I applied is because once I just started writing down all the little things that I've done over the years, I felt like, you know what? I should be able to get this job. I mean, I've got, what, five years in Rails now. You know, I built Rails applications for Apple, remember? (laughs) Department of Defense, Square, Camera Bits, I've done open source work. I've got that JNet cube thing living on SourceForge. I built a couple gems for Climate Corporation. I've worked on the open source project Spree. I built this gem GitHub Auth that lets me pair with strangers on the internet. 
I've spoken at conferences about JRuby, service-oriented architecture, Vim, and Tmux. I've taught Ruby developers how to solve the Rubik's Cube in 20 seconds and how to solve it blindfolded. I've taught them how to memorize anything they want to memorize, a shuffle deck of cards, whatever. And I've proven I can work with other people. I can work remotely. I can work in pairs. I know the whole Agile thing. I've worked in a 2000 person company for the Department of Defense. I've worked in a 500-person company, Square, and I've worked in a three-person company at Camera Bits. I'm interesting. I solved the Rubik's Cube. I'm a photographer. I can memorize a shuffle deck of cards in five minutes. I have all these Twitter followers because I do conference talks. All these little things make me look like a better programmer than what I really am. And the secret is everybody else you know is just like this. Every person in your mind that you can think of that's like your inspiration, your mentor, if only I could be like this person, I would be so good at programming. They're all the same way. Nobody knows everything. Nobody knows all the things there are to know. All you need to do is spend the time learning small subsets of this vast pool of knowledge out there and do it enough times that you have a resume that shows that you're able to learn and shows that you're able to get stuff done. So I got the job at GitHub and I've now been here almost two years, which if you paid attention to my previous jobs is kind of amazing because usually six months to a year, I'm out of there. But the nice thing about GitHub and a lot of other companies work this way too is I have a lot of freedom to continue to develop as a programmer, to continue to progress as a programmer and not have to leave the company. For one, I'm remote. So I save a ton of time with commuting. I have no commute at all. So I have a lot of free time. Number two, I am surrounded by people who are extremely smart, much smarter than me. So no matter what project I'm working on at GitHub, and that can change quite frequently, I'm always learning something new because everybody around me is much smarter. Number three, GitHub allows me to do an unlimited number of conferences if I'm speaking, which is amazing because every talk I do, I have to go so in-depth on that topic that the potential for learning is amazing and I can do as many as I want and it's seen as working. You know, if I'm at home not doing something for GitHub because I'm writing a talk, that's okay because that personal development is very important to GitHub and it's important to a lot of other companies as well. And the last reason why I'm still at GitHub and why I really love this company and haven't thought about moving somewhere else yet is because I have a very flexible schedule. So if I have a side project I'm working on like this podcast, for example, I can record it on a Monday afternoon and not feel bad, because if I do a little bit of work on Saturday, that's totally okay. So some of the other things that I've started this year, 2014, to help me become a better programmer are, one, taking a codecation twice a year, and if you're not familiar with what a codecation is, listen to just the last episode, healthyhacker.com slash 10, and this is where I just take a week to work on something totally new and come back refreshed and ready to work on some of the stuff I usually work on. The other thing that I've started this year is this podcast, Healthy Hacker. I've never done a podcast before, but this thing is so fun. Every single week, I have to pick a topic and I need to learn that topic. And if I don't do that, you're going to know and you're going to be angry and I'm going to be angry and sad. So the podcast is a great motivator to constantly be learning new things and then teaching them to you or telling you about how I learn those things. And finally, the last thing that I'm starting this year, and this is actually something I'm starting today, right now, is to pair more with random strangers, random people on the internet to do remote pairing. And the way I see this working is I'm just gonna open up my calendar, set some time aside, and let random people come in and pair with me on whatever they want. And this is totally an invitation for you to do that. So. If you want to pair with me on anything, could be an open source project, could be homework if you're in school, it could be something you're doing at work, it could be the Rubik's Cube, it could be memory, it could be something totally unrelated, I don't care because I'll probably learn something too. Go to healthyhacker.com slash pair and set up a time with me to do that. We'll do screen sharing, video, whatever. It'll be half an hour. It'll be a lot of fun. But I, I'm going to try this at least for the next few months and see how it goes, see if I learn stuff. I have a feeling it's going to be a lot of fun. So pairing with strangers, something I want to start this year, healthyhacker.com slash pair. So that's it. Let me summarize everything up. This is what I think are the strategies that I've used to grow the fastest 
as a programmer, looking back on the jobs I've had and the way that I've gotten those jobs and how I would say I've improved. So number one is always be learning something new. It doesn't matter what it is. Just pick something and learn it. And when you've learned that, learn something else. And I usually get inspiration from podcasts, like I said before, from screencasts, from meetups, and I make an open source project or some kind of side project, or I take something at work and I make that open source, or I pick a new project at work. Always find something that's different than what you're working on now and work on it. The second strategy that I have for improving as a programmer, and this is related to the one I just said, is to have other interests. Don't just program. So for me, that's the Rubik's Cube, and that's memory, and that's photography. Those things are great inspiration for side projects. They make you a more rounded person. Being a good developer has very little to do with code, and it has more to do with communication and leadership, inspiring people to get things done, prioritizing work, and all that stuff can be improved with your side hobbies, and it makes you a more interesting person and more people want to work with you. Nobody wants to work with a person who stands in front of their laptop all day. Get inspiration from other things that you do, other interests you have, and that's going to make you a better programmer. The third strategy that I think I use to become a better programming is to use my job as a learning opportunity, not just a way to get paid. So make sure, first off, that you're always the dumbest person in the room. If you ever find yourself at a company where every time you talk to somebody or every time you have a meeting, and I don't mean this in a bad way like you hate everybody, but just if you're spending the time to improve yourself as a developer and you find yourself surrounded by people who aren't doing the same thing, it's time to move on to a different company. It's time to go to a place where everybody around you is gonna be constantly teaching you new things. Take the time to pair with people on projects you're not working on and learn as much as you can while you're in a company. And when that learning stops or when that learning slows down to a point that you don't see it speeding up anytime in the future, it's time to move on to a new company. So bringing it back to the beginning, summarizing, closing, whatever, finishing this episode of the podcast, Coming back to that first question of what is a senior engineer? What does that even mean? I'm pretty sure a senior engineer is someone that has enough experience in enough different technologies that they can quickly select and learn the technology that makes sense for today. Because all the stuff you know today doesn't matter. It does not matter what you know today. What matters is that you can quickly learn the things that matter tomorrow, that you can continue to keep yourself relevant and you know how to do that. So don't worry about learning all the frameworks. Don't worry about learning all the languages. But focus on learning something and constantly learning something new. And that's it. If you want to see the show notes for this episode, for links to some of the things that I talked about, head to healthyhacker.com slash 11. And if you have another question that you'd like to answer on the show, leave me a voicemail at healthyhacker.com slash voicemail. 